Welcome to How They Get Stuff Done, where we ask successful people about the productivity habits behind their success. Side effects of listening to this show may include elevated levels of motivation, acute feelings of inspiration, and lasting improvements to your productivity. Now, here's your host, Peter Akis. Hey, folks. Today, I'm speaking with myself. Normally on the show, I interview successful people, and I ask them, how do you get stuff done? How do you do what it is that you do? Now, I've heard from a lot of you, from a lot of listeners like you, and people said, Peter, we want to hear a little bit more about how you get stuff done. We want to hear more of your story. So today, I want to share my story with you, go through sort of four recent phases of my life. And I want to share with you what productivity means to me and what it meant in each of these phases of my life, what I learned from going through these different things, how I deliberately arranged my life in such a way that I can be productive despite the challenges that I have. And I know everybody has challenges, and I'll tell you about mine. Um, And I just also want to give you a sense of how I do things today and why I do things the way that I do. And hopefully you can take away from this that you can also, over time, rearrange your life in such a way that you can really be productive and doing the things that you want to be doing. So I'm going to divide this episode up into four phases of my life. And we'll start right after I graduated from college. And when I started working as an economic consultant, which is also sometimes known as a litigation consultant. So that's phase number one. In phase number two, I'll tell you about the burnout that I went through. In phase number three, I'll tell you about a time in my life when I was what I call entrepreneuring. I was wanting to be an entrepreneur. So I'll tell you about that. And then fourth and finally, I will tell you about running the online business that I have today, which has become um, moderately successful. Now, before we get started, I just want to tell you that um, a big, big, big help to me over the past many years, really since I graduated college, has been the use of task managers. And task managers are such an important part of my life. They really have me feeling in control of what I'm doing, and I would have so much of a harder time doing all the things that I like to do if it weren't for the task managers that I use or task manager that I use right now, but um, I've used multiple task managers over the years. And you may have heard about me, in fact, because you've watched one of my task management videos on YouTube or taken one of my task management courses, um, or maybe you're new. And if you are new to the concept of task management or you haven't heard my take on it, what I would really love for you to do is to check out a free mini course that I created. It's called Choosing the Right Task Manager for You. So I help you figure out which task manager is the right one for you. You can find that over at whichtaskmanager.com. Again, whichtaskmanager.com. Totally free mini course. Just sign up for that and you'll get a taste of my task management workflow which has helped me so much over the years in being productive and and reaching the success that I have reached, um, go sign up for that. Okay, without further ado, uh, let me tell you my story and how I do what it is that I do. I want to start by defining productivity. I like to ask my guests about what productivity means to them, so 
I wanted to share my approach on this with you. I think of productivity as making progress towards your goals. So if you uh, are more productive, you are making more progress towards your goals or maybe faster progress. We could define it in multiple ways, but that's the, the gist of it. So that means that you do need to know what your goals are to be able to be productive. I mean, if you don't know what it is that you want, productivity doesn't exist for you, right? So, um, well, I guess it exists in the sense of then your goal might be figure out what I want, you know, and any progress you make towards that would be productive. And, and actually, there, there was a phase in my life when that was really kind of what was going on with me. So I'll tell you more about that in a little bit. But that's really the key for me is am I making consistent progress towards my goals? If so, I am productive. And if I want to be more productive, it means making more progress towards my goals. So I'll tell you a little bit more later also about my goal setting pro um, process, but I want to have that backdrop. So let me start now by telling you about this first of the four phases of my life I'm going to tell you about. Of course, you know, this, <laughs> I wasn't born graduating from college, but we'll start, we'll start the story there. So in 2012, um, I was either 22 or 23 years old, and I was graduating from one of the top colleges in the U.S., and I had secured a job at an economic consulting firm or litigation consulting firm um, called Cornerstone Research. So in college, and especially in the final year or two of college, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my life. I had studied economics, um, political science, and public policy, but I didn't really want to stay in academia. Um, I did a bachelor, which is very common in the U.S. Um, uh, well, it's very common to not immediately do a master's degree. So, so I didn't go for a master's degree, whereas here in Europe, um, I'm originally from Europe. I also, I'm also i from the Netherlands. I, I live in Amsterdam again these days after having lived in the U.S. for a long time. It's quite common to immediately go for a master's degree after a bachelor's degree, but I didn't want to do that. Instead, I wanted to get some work experience first, and consulting sounded good to me. I don't really know why, <laughs> um, but it sounded good to me at the time to, you know, 22, 23-year-old Peter, and so I got a job at Cornerstone Research. Now, economic or litigation consulting is different from um, the type of management or strategy consulting that you may first think of when you hear the phrase consulting firm. Um, this was not like a McKinsey or a Boston Consulting Group or even an Accenture or Deloitte. It was not like that. Um, economic or litigation consulting is really a practice in which you're supporting, in the end, end clients, but your direct clients are law firms, um, and those law firms are working on cases. So they can be cases in litigation, hence the phrase litigation consulting, or they can be um, you know, regulatory cases. For example, we did some antitrust cases where, let's say, two big companies wanted to merge um, and they needed to do some preparatory work to try and convince the regulators that these companies merging wouldn't be harmful to consumers. So w the firm that I worked for, which at the time had about 600 employees divided over a bunch of different offices, maybe like six or seven offices at the time, um, you know, we ran that kind, kind of economic analysis. So the work involved a lot of spreadsheets, doing analysis in spreadsheets based on data that clients supplied us or that we got from publicly available resources or privately available resources like databases. Um, a lot of statistical work as well with statistical uh, you know, analysis packages. A lot of reading documents, a lot, a lot of times like reading documents submitted to the court in litigation to try and figure out what happened. And 
to make this more concrete, you know, there was a case, for example, I worked on one time where one company sued another company and said, listen, you mismanaged our money. You lost us a lot of money during the financial crisis of like 2008-ish. Um, and our client, the company that Cornerstone Research and thus I was working for, um, said, no, you know what? Uh, we didn't mismanage your money. It's just that the whole stock market did very poorly and, and other types of asset classes also did very poorly. And so we didn't mismanage your money. You just lost money because of bad luck and it's an economy-wide thing. So we don't have to compensate you at all. And so I would be staffed on a project like that and I'd be running numbers, um, you know, making charts, writing up uh, documents. Our firm often worked with outside experts. So maybe someone who is a well-known professor um, of statistics or a business uh, leader who has published um, respected works on you know what's going on in the economy or in the stock market or, or something like that. Um, and so we would often be working sort of theoretically under the guidance of an expert like that. And the expert would submit a, a report to the court that where the litigation was ongoing and say, hey, um, this is my opinion. In my opinion, this firm, you know, the firm that retained me, <laughs> really doesn't have to pay any money or shouldn't have to pay very much. So that's kind of the stage um, or the, the, yeah, just setting the stage here. And when I moved into this job, right? Again, I was either 22 or 23 years old. Let's say I just turned 23, I guess, when I started. Um, I didn't know much about this world. So the first thing we did in the first couple of weeks when I started working there is we had a you know several week long training program where we ran mock cases and more experienced analysts told me, um, you know, what kind of work uh, are we going to do here? What can you expect? You know, how do you make how do you run a good analysis? How do you make sure that the analysis that you're running is correct, um, that you're supplying clients and, and you know, end clients and the courts and everything, correct data? Um, how do you format charts? You know, like when, when someone asks you to make a chart, how do you make sure it's readable? How do you make sure it, it looks nice, it's accurate? Um, they taught us that we were always to check our work. And the way we checked our work was we would always have one person who would do an analysis and a second person who would do that same analysis independently. And then we were taught to match up the results of our analysis with each other. So if we, if the analysis produced some numbers, we made sure that the numbers are the same. Um, and if not, we would say, hey, say, you know, why are these numbers not the same? Um, either, you know, one of us or both of us <laughs> made mistakes. So a lot of training in the first few weeks on the job. And when I started working at this job, it was initially in an uh, office in Boston. But after about a year, I moved to San Francisco, and I started working in the firm's Menlo Park um, office in Menlo Park, California, which is actually in Silicon Valley, but I, I lived in San Francisco at the time. Now, this economic consulting work, this litigation consulting work, it always had to be done accurately, but also quickly. We were working for some of the, the top law firms um, in the U.S. and around the world, and they were demanding clients. So the, the firm that I worked for, I always worked with very lovely people, um, good-hearted people, um, very competent people also. Um, and so I never felt like they you know, had bad intentions for me. But the, the people that I, that I worked for, the managers and the, um, you know, the executive partners and, and vice presidents and all that, um, you know, they, they understood that the industry we were in, you had better deliver. You had better deliver accurate work and you had better deliver it fast. Um, that's, the, that's the way it goes in this consulting world. And that was uh, that took some getting used to when I when I first started working there. 
because it really demanded a lot of me. Um, if it was Friday afternoon at 3 p.m. and one of our clients on a case that I was staffed with said, hey, I need this additional analysis and I need it by Monday morning at 6 a.m., um, then we had to do that. And it didn't matter that it was Friday at 3 p.m. So we would either stay very late Friday, maybe we would work Saturday or maybe even a little bit on Sunday um, to try and get this work done. I had to get used to that initially. Um, after some time, that just became a normal part of my life. But um, I did very quickly start feeling the the pressure from that. So when I would meet with a friend, for example, it would always be with a caveat. I think I can meet you Thursday night, but this is all contingent on there not being sort of an emergency at work, and emergencies tended to happen quite often. Um, I worked a good amount of hours, I would say 40 to 50 hours a week, um, which may not sound excessive to some of you, um, but the, the thing is, it was really variable. So so there were weeks when I, you know, I just worked 40 hours and that was it, but there were also weeks when I would work 70 hours or even 80 hours. Um, there were a few times when for like a week or two in a row, I was just in the office pat, way past dinner and, you know, un, you know, until between 10 p.m. and, and 1 a.m. Um, for like a week in a row to the point where you're always having your dinner at the office, you're, you're getting it delivered, um, you're always taking taxis home that the company pays for, you know? And so it took a lot of time, and especially when I lived in San Francisco and I worked in Menlo Park in California, I just had a very long commute. So in addition to working, let's say on average, maybe 45 hours a week, um, I would have three hours of commuting a day. So I lived in San Francisco, which I wanted to do because there's more to do for a young person in San Francisco than in Menlo Park. Um, and Low Park is a small suburb, really, in Silicon Valley. Um, there's a lot going on, by the way, in Menlo Park and, and sort of the surrounding towns. You know, there's a, that, that's where the headquarters of Facebook is. You've also got Google very nearby, Stanford. There's a lot of stuff nearby, and Apple is just a few towns over the headquarters. But, um, yeah, I wanted to live in San Francisco, and unfortunately, that created so much commuting um, you know, I'm Dutch, so I like to bike. And so what I would do in the morning is I would sort of wake up, have a quick breakfast and shower, and then hop on my bike, rush, 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 bike through the city of San Francisco, where it's not super safe to bike, by the way, at least not for Dutch standards, um, and get on a train. And I would always hope that I would make this train because, it would, you know, if I didn't make this train, I would have to take a, a later, slower train. And uh, I would still show up at the office at like 9.40 in the morning, so not exactly early. And then if I was lucky, I would be home at maybe 7.30, but sometimes it, it would be like 8.30 or 9.30 or something like that, very often. Um, so really a part of my life, went, I worked a lot. Um, and even even if it wasn't necessarily working a lot, I was at the office a lot or at least away from home a lot. Now, so the job took a lot of time, okay? And at the time, I wasn't very good at managing the work. I didn't really use a task manager to speak of, um, which is funny. If you know me now, I'm super organized and really big on task managers. But at the time, that wasn't really a part of my life. And what I did is I just managed my tasks with the Microsoft Outlook tasks feature that's kind of built into the Outlook app, which is very basic. It's just like a to-do list, but like one list. Um, and I would usually have like, you know, five to 10 or maybe 15 items on it. And I would just drag them up, you know, in different priorities a very not sophisticated way of managing my tasks. Um, and that's, in hindsight, crazy because I was 
almost always staffed on more than one project, meaning working you know, for more than one client at a time, on more than one team with more than one manager. So the way that, that it worked um, and the way it works in all these economic consulting slash litigation consulting firms is teams are formed per project. So we had a bunch of analysts, we had a bunch of managers um, and a bunch of principals. And so a principal would get a job, a project, a case from a client, and then would pick a manager and the manager would pick some analysts. Um, there does, of course, some central clearing process to do the staffing. But, um, you know, one time I'd work with one manager and the next project I'd work with another one and it would, it, and I would work with one fellow analyst or different fellow analysts. And, and that was always, um, that changed. So there's a lot of change there. Um, anyway, I, I really wasn't very organized at all. And in hindsight, it's crazy that I managed to get work done. So the interesting thing about this environment is it was very high pressure. Um, just to give you an example of how the level of detail that we went through, um, I'll give you two examples. One thing is when we filed reports in this job. So again, we, we filed a report often to the court to support some litigation, right? So we say our client shouldn't owe any damages or should owe way fewer damages than the um, than the plaintiff's uh, claim, you know, for such and such reason. Look, we did a, we ran a lot of numbers. Look at look at this. What well, you know? Here's the the math that we did, and and it's based on these documents. And so these reports, we would write these, and sometimes they'd be ten pages long. Sometimes they'd be like two hundred and ten pages long. That's excessive. I would say on average maybe I don't know thirty to sixty pages. And when we we're getting ready to, to submit a report like that to the court. We would fact check it meticulously. And I mean really meticulously. Um, we would go over every single sentence, every single word, every single letter in these reports to make sure that it was accurate. If we were quoting someone, we would make sure that there were no missing commas in the quote. We would make sure that there's not an accidental the that wasn't part of the quote, that we made it seem like it was part of the quote, but it wasn't. We made sure that the footnote that linked to the source material was correct, that it linked to the correct page, um, that we had supporting material um, where, you know, this that this quote came from, right? If we, if we did math um, and we reported on the results of the math, of the analysis in the, in the report, um, we would make sure, oh, we're naming this number. The number is $3.2 million. Um, I would go find the an analysis that produced this $3.2 million number. I would make sure that two people had independently come up with this number, that they had reviewed each other's work, and that the numbers matched. And then I would make sure that the number that they came up with was actually the number that we had in the report. And of course, I, I made sure of all sorts of other things that, you know, I'm not reporting the wrong number or you know, we did some sensitivity analysis to see how the analysis um, would be affected by changing some of our assumptions that we didn't accidentally report um, the wrong number. So much checking. And this whole report was checked by at least two analysts independently um, and by the manager. <laughs> so insane amount of level of detail. Um, another example of the level of detail, and by the way, I'm, I'm telling you all of this because it's very relevant to uh, my life experience since then. So um, bear with me. Second example is I remember one day I was working on the footnotes to a chart. And this chart, I don't remember exactly what it showed. It probably showed some stock price 
over a period of years, what a particular stock price did over a period of years, maybe compared to some other stock prices. I'm not sure. Um, And I was working on the footnotes to a chart, and at the time I was staffed on a project with a fellow analyst who was more senior than I was named Brooke. And Brooke said, Peter, can you do the first draft of this chart and write the footnotes, and then I'll review it. So I, I really did my best on this. I mean, I spent a couple hours working on it. And at some point... Um, I tell Brooke, hey, I'm done with the first draft. Would you like to review it? So Brooke reviews my chart, and she says, Peter, do you have like some time now? And I'm, I'm like, sure, sure. So she comes over to my cubicle. At the time, I was still sitting in a, still working out of a cubicle. Um, later on, I, I got like my own office, or a shared office anyway. Um, so she comes over, she pulls up a chair, sits in my cubicle, and she says, all right, Peter, I'm going to teach you how to write proper footnotes. This is not criticism of you. Several years ago, when I started working here, I had someone who was more senior uh, also explain this to me. Um, You didn't do anything wrong. I just want to show you how to write footnotes to the degree of, you know, accuracy and precision that we really need here. I was like, wow, okay, (laughs) let's do this. And she proceeded to just tear apart the footnotes to this chart that I'd written, right? So we would have footnotes like, you know, this particular line on the chart shows this particular stock price from this year to that year adjusted for inflation and maybe we did a couple of other things um and you know we would list the source um like where we found the information that we were charting on the graph and brooke just completely tore my footnotes apart i mean you know we printed the chart out and she would take like a marker to the document and you know change things I'm pretty sure only like a third of of the many sentences of footnotes that I'd written was still, you know, (laughs) intact after she was done. And we really spent maybe an hour, an hour and a half, even two hours, you know, I don't recall exactly, but a long time going over these footnotes, like word by word and comma by comma. And she'd be like, Peter, these these three words are redundant. You don't need to say them. Delete. Or, um, Peter, this is ambiguous. The way you wrote it right now, you can interpret this sentence either this way or that way. So let's rewrite it in a way that is impossible to misinterpret, right? Um, or, you know, you you gave us, um, you, you didn't give us enough information here. We need to add some more information. Oh, you made an assumption on the chart in your analysis that you didn't tell us about in the footnote. So we got to add an extra footnote to explain to people that we made this assumption. And, and it went on like that for, like I said, an hour or two. And... That's the level of detail that from then on I always worked at when I was working for Cornerstone Research. And I felt very proud to be able to create charts that were just so smooth. I mean, it was really hard to like come up with any way to create better charts, honestly, because um, we put so much effort into this. But over the, I don't know, a couple dozen projects that I, that I worked at at Cornerstone over the, the years after that, I would make sure that everything was in in like great shape. So the thing is, when you have to work at that level of detail, where every letter, number, comma, whatever matters, and your work has to be done accurately, um, and it has to be done quickly, um, clients are demanding, and there's millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes at stake. That's a lot of pressure. You know, um, I guess there was one other time when I was 
you know, I was just doing doing something, and and one of my managers was like, Peter, 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 can I can I get some of your time right now? And I'm like, sure, sure, what is? It? And she's like, okay, grab pen and paper and come over. Um, and she was on a call, and she was on mute, and she called me into her office, and she was like, listen to what the client who's I'm on the phone with, listen to what they're saying, and um, as soon as you understand what this client wants, I want you to run back to your desk, and to create a really rough draft of this chart in in like ten minutes, and then send it back to me. Okay, I need to send this rough draft to him like while we're still on the call. <laughs> uh, and so I did. And that's so much pressure, you know? The thing is, I was really good at this job. So maybe I'm making it sound terrible, but the, the projects were interesting. The people were really smart, competent, fun. And I was also very good at this job. So every year I got promoted. I got big bonuses. Um, you know, objectively, I was doing really well. However, um, I didn't feel like I had much time outside of work. So, you know, I had at most a few hours a day to myself, if that. And um, I tried to get some bouldering in, some some rock climbing in the indoor gym every now and then. And I usually managed to do that, but it was like, you know, seven in the morning often when I would have to do that. So I have to get up quite early, go climbing for a little bit with some coworkers before work, uh, shower at the climbing gym, and then, you know, head over to work and arrive a little bit later than my managers would have liked me to arrive. Um, but that was really the setting, and, and I really didn't have much time off. Um, you know, being from Europe, going to the U.S., I really didn't have that many vacation days. I think I had many, maybe 20 vacation days a year. You know, I wanted to visit my family back in the Netherlands, and, and that would really use up most of my vacation days, so I barely ever had any time, actually, to enjoy myself outside of work. And I started asking myself, like, why am I doing this? Why am I spending, you know, my whole life on this job? Um, yeah, I'm making a lot of money, but I can't really spend it on things that I enjoy because I don't have time. And so this was the moment in my life when I realized that something wasn't right, something was going wrong. And I'm going to tell you in a little bit about the second phase of this story where I was really burned out, but this is when I started to notice some of those early signs or symptoms of burnout, which are common. Um, I was getting increasingly cynical about my job. Um, you know, oh, this, it's always going to be like this. I'm never going to get a breather. I can't get out of this, you know. Um, we talked about the golden handcuffs. Uh, it's a job that pays really, really, really well, but you don't really like it, so you got your golden handcuffs. Um, another sign that I was already noticing at the time was an inability to juggle multiple responsibilities. Um, I also got quite irritable. So I'd be working on one project and a manager for a different project would come over to my office or call me over to their office and be like, Hey, Peter, can you do this thing for me? And I'd be like, I cannot right now. I cannot, I cannot, I cannot. I'm working on this other thing. I was really not capable of doing multiple things at a time. And, you know, multitasking is such a complicated subject. It's always good to try to focus on one thing at a time. However, um, a normal person who, who is not feeling really burned out or stressed can say, listen, give me a few minutes to like wrap this up and then I'll have my brain free to talk to you about this other thing. But I wasn't really able to do that and I became quite irritable. Um, I also started believing that I couldn't really change my situation. So I was working in the U.S., and I'm not, I'm not a U.S. citizen. I'm from the Netherlands. And uh, I had a work visa. You know, at first I had a student visa when I studied in the U.S., and then I got a, a work visa when I worked for this company. But the terms of the work visa were such that if I quit my job on Friday, I would have to leave the country you know, by Saturday. And so that also made me feel like 
I couldn't really take a break from work. I could tell that this situation sort of over the years was getting worse and worse, putting more pressure on me, stressing me out, not giving me enough time to do my own thing outside of work, but I felt like I couldn't escape. And so that's a very common burnout sign and symptom as well. And we'll talk more about burnout in a bit. Um, finally, something that in hindsight was a massive red flag is that I started hiding from my work whenever I could. Um, so when I had to work late, for example, um, I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm going to have to be in the office until 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. today. Around like 5 p.m., I would order dinner, have the company pay for it. And when the food showed up, I would like close the door to my office, put on headphones, um, eat my dinner while watching something on my computer. And usually I was watching World War II documentaries because I'm really interested in World War II history. Um, and just try to try to get out of this work mode for a little bit. <sighs> put on my headphones, you know, engage with one of my personal interests for a little bit of time. Um, and I would often you know, trying not to have dinner with my coworkers just so that I could have that moment to myself. In hindsight, that was a big red flag and it really shouldn't be like that. So eventually, and this is when we come to phase number two of this story, eventually this all got so bad that I realized this is not a sustainable situation. I am chronically stressed. I've gotten so irritable. I can't enjoy myself. I want something different. I need to quit this job. Unfortunately, quitting the job meant that I also had to move back to the Netherlands um, just because my visa in the U.S. wouldn't be valid anymore. And, you know, I had a whole life in the U.S. At that point, I'd lived in the United States for seven years. I'd studied there. I've made lots of friends. Um, I was now living in San Francisco, which is a lovely city, really fun. Um, I, like, I had a job that paid really well. I had a nice apartment, nice roommates. Um but yeah, I, I decided that the job was so bad for me that I just had to give it all up. And at the time, I didn't use the phrase burnout. I didn't realize that that was, was what was happening to me. I just felt stuck, and I wanted to get out of the stuckness. So I decided, you know what? I got to take the plunge. I just got to move back to the Netherlands and, and quit this job and just take some time off, <laughs> you know? So I did. Um, got an apartment in Amsterdam, and... Very quickly, without the job distracting me, I started to realize that a lot more was wrong with me than I originally thought. And I don't mean wrong with me in like, in hindsight, like this was all part of a process, you know? And so I'm not sitting here right now saying, hey, um, I'm broken or anything like that. It's just at the time, you know, there were a lot of things wrong with me. And uh, that's just the way it was. I learned a lot from it, but that's how it was at the time. I felt exhausted all the time. Um, I was unable to do basic things without being seriously stressed. So we moved into a new apartment. Um, I moved in with with a, a you know my partner at the time, who I'm no longer with. And so you know she and I got an apartment. And there's some things to do when you first move into an apartment. Like we wanted to paint some walls to make things look a little bit nicer. And you know when you paint your walls, you like put tape on your door frames so that you don't accidentally also get some paint on your door frames. And then when you're done painting the walls, you remove the, the tape from the door frames. So one day, I was removing that tape from the door frames, and just that simple act was so stressful. Some of the tape wouldn't come off right away. It wouldn't rip off cleanly. I'd kind of have to, you know, stab at it or, like, you know, scrub it off. Um, and that was so stressful. I mean, I went completely crazy. 
Um, another day I was just trying to do some vacuum cleaning, but after like 15 minutes of vacuum cleaning, I just, wow, it was like a massive storm in my head. I became impossibly annoying to be around. Uh, my heart would beat really fast. I remember at one point, like my vision blacked out for a few seconds from the stress and that was really bad. Um, and it went on like this for a long time. At this point now we're talking early 2016 and, uh, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to spend some time not working. You know, I just need to, I know something is not right with me right now, but it'll probably fix itself if I just spend some time not working. So what did I do instead? Um, bouldered. I did a lot, a lot of indoor bouldering, you know, three times a week. Uh, I would go biking through the city of Amsterdam. Um, I developed a taste for coffee, for, for fancy coffee, as I like to say. So I checked out a lot of different uh, local coffee houses. and I read a lot of books. And the thing is, even those things were hard. You know, like there's, there's really no productivity to speak of in this period of my life because I couldn't do basic things. Um, I had such problems, for example, with indecision. Here I am, very few responsibilities in the world. You know, I don't have a job or anything. I'm just, you know, I'm just at home or wherever I want to be all day. And I've got plenty of money because I made a lot of money over the preceding three and a half years and I saved a lot of it up. So I have a lot of money, I have a lot of time. Um, and I had trouble with basic things. Like I would say, you know what? I'm going to go drink a cup of coffee at my favorite coffee house and um, just sit there for a little while, read this book. And so I'd be on the way there and then I'd be half, halfway there, I'd be thinking, hmm, actually, I think I feel like going to the bookstore. And so I change direction. You know, I, I, I turn around on my bike and go the other way to the bookstore. And then a minute later, I'd be like, wait, why am I going to the bookstore? Um, I said I was going to go to the coffee place. Let's go back to the coffee place. And so I turn around again. And it would go, it'd be like that for a few, for, you know, a couple more times, just going back and forth. And if you'd looked at me, like if a, a bystander had just looked at me, they would have thought I was totally crazy. Um, I was having a lot of trouble just making basic decisions. Like, do I feel like going to the bookstore right now? Or do I feel like going to a coffee house? And if that's the kind of thing you're struggling with in life, you, you cannot do higher order stuff. You know what I'm saying? So the preceding years working in economic consulting had really messed my brain up so much that I just couldn't function at a basic level. I mean, I was able to do some stuff, you know, I was able to go bouldering. I was able to like meet friends every now and then and play board games with them. And, you know, that was fine, but, uh, I, I really couldn't do any type of work. So at some point I started blogging. Um, and that was very hard for me at the time. Um, I was just blogging about whatever, I'm blogging about whatever, you know, was interesting to me every now and then I felt like writing something, just some thoughts on you know, the state of the world or something I learned or whatever, you know? Um, and nobody was reading my blog at the time, just just my family. Thank you very much, family, for supporting me <laughs> and a few friends. Um, but that was about all I could do, write a blog post every now and then. And like, that's it. So this phase went on for a long time, maybe like like probably a year or longer. And people started asking me, oh, Peter, what are you, you going to do next? Oh, Peter, are you going to find a job? Whatever. And, and I'd always say, yeah, you know, not now, blah, blah. Um, and I really have a hard time even realizing what I, what I did for that whole year, you know? Um, I guess I went on a few trips, you know, a, a few weeks each time. But really, a lot of the time, I think I just, I was just feeling bad. Now, after about a year, maybe a year and a couple months, um, I ran into someone who was a psychologist. And I, 
told her about what was going on with me. And she was like, okay, you know what, Peter, do you mind if we like, do you mind if I like read something to you and you kind of just like react to me? I, I just have a list of, of some symptoms and, and I would like to ask you whether you're experiencing any of these things. So I'm like, sure. And she goes, okay, um, are you having trouble with indecision? And I'm like, yeah. Are you feeling exhausted all the time? I'm like, yeah, yeah. Uh, are you feeling forgetful more so than in the past? I'm like, yeah, actually, now that you mention it, yeah, like I have had a lot of trouble just forgetting stuff. You know, I remember sometimes my girlfriend and I would say, okay, uh, my girlfriend at the time, right, different girlfriend. And so she would say, hey, Peter, like while I'm at work, do you mind picking some stuff up from the DIY store? And I'd be like, yeah, sure. Uh, okay, we need these things. Cool, cool. And then I would go there and I would just forget. Even, even though I had written down a note on what I was supposed to get, I would just forget. And I was like, what? So weird because I'd always prided myself, you know, on having such a good memory. I remember when I was, when I was a teenager sitting in class, you know, memorizing Latin conjugations, and I crushed that. Like, I was really good at that. I had good memory. Um, and now my memories seem to be shit, you know? And so when this psychologist asked me about that, I was like, huh, yeah, that's true. She was like, okay, how about, like, are you having trouble taking initiative? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. Um, and she rattled off, like, a bunch more. I think it was, like, 17 symptoms or something like that. And, and, and I was experiencing most of those. And she said, Peter, I think what's going on with you is you're burned out. And I was like, oh. Like, I, people had kind of suggested that to me before, but I hadn't really taken them seriously. But here was someone who's a trained psychologist, like a therapist, I was saying that to me, and she said, look, I can't help you with this, but you need to go see a psychologist. You, know, you need to go see someone. You need therapy. And I was like, huh, maybe you're right. And at this point, I already spent well over a year trying to fix myself. You know, again, I knew something was wrong with me. I hadn't really realized it was burnout. I got into meditation at this point. I was meditating every day, and that was a way for me to feel better, and that helped a little bit. Um, I went on a bunch of trips. That also helped a little bit, but I really wasn't making much progress. And so when she said, look, you got to go see someone, I fairly quickly made an appointment with an actual psychologist. And it, it took like a month or two for me to be able to get my first appointment. Um, and that's, that's when I started therapy, uh, which I did for about six months, um, either once a week or once every other week. And during this phase, again, like, I, you know, there's no productivity to speak of. <laughs> I was just dealing with like, how to become a basic functioning human being again who can do normal things, you know? And so the very first time I, I went to the psychologist, I remember this very well. She said, Peter, how are you feeling? And I'm thinking about it. And uh, I didn't know. So I said, I don't know. She's like, yeah, I thought so. Um, that's where we're going to start. You know, we're going to work on that first. So it, it turns out that I just lacked the basic ability to figure out what I was feeling. I knew I was feeling bad, but I didn't really know like what kind of bad. And so the very first thing we did is she said, all right, Peter, let's start here. When you're feeling bad, there's four main types of feeling bad. You can either feel sad, angry, uh, ashamed, or scared. And so she said, there's a lot of flavors of those, but it's really... Um, sadness, anger, shame, and fear are really the four key negative feelings you can have. So what I want you to do, Peter, is every time you're from now on that you realize that you're feeling bad, ask yourself which of those things you're feeling. Uh, and I started doing that. So 
I would just be going about my day and I would be struggling with something basic. Like, oh, I'd be vacuuming the floor, but I wouldn't be, um, you know, I, I would feel bad. And I'd ask myself, okay, what is it? Am I angry? Yeah, I guess I'm a little angry. Um, am I sad? No, not sad. Do I feel ashamed? Maybe a little bit. Uh, do I feel fear? Yeah, I do feel really scared. And I started doing that all the time. And what my therapist and I uncovered was that basically I had a fear of not being good enough. Don't want to go too much into my backstory here because I could talk about this all day, but it turned out that a lot of my stress problems were caused by me constantly feeling like I wasn't good enough at whatever it is that I was doing. Not good enough at vacuuming the floor. Literally. I mean, this sounds crazy, but I was thinking like, am I vacuuming the floor efficiently? Am I missing spots? Um, But also things like, what am I doing with my life? You know, like, oh, I'm just sitting around here all day. I don't have a job. Um, Oh, I just spent the afternoon reading a book. Like, you know, shouldn't I be doing something with my life? Or like, why am I having such trouble deciding whether to go to the bookstore or to the coffee house? And, you know, what's wrong with me? So I was constantly just afraid of not being good enough and also of just, you know, not getting better. And to be fair, like I I was really messed up at the time, you know, so it was difficult to convince myself that I was, quote, good enough. Um, There's just a lot of data every day that I was really messed up. So during the therapy, I realized that what happened was actually there was a vicious circle. And me feeling not good enough led me to try harder at whatever it is that I was doing. And trying harder um, often resulted in sort of poor results because it stressed me out, right? And then those poor results in turn made me feel like I got to try harder and then I would stress myself out more. And so that is kind of the circle that landed me into burnout. So me not feeling good enough. So then I would try harder. I get more stressed. And then the more stressed I got, I'd be like, oh, now I'm definitely not good enough, et cetera, et cetera. And this is a pattern that really um, got out of hand when I was working as an economic consultant. And again, I don't really blame any of the people that I'm that I'm I was working with at the time. I don't blame them for that. It's just some some things that I had learned um, or some experiences that I had uh, as a teenager going through some stuff. Um, not terrible things, you know. Just like we all have experiences that create personality traits, you know. I haven't had any terrible experiences in my life, um, but there's just moments that happened that that made me susceptible to this, and so. That just really got out of hand when I when I had that job, and that caused you know me to be burned out and in this um, position where I had been so stressed for so long that I wasn't able to do basic things anymore just because the stress was just debilitating. So understanding this was a major breakthrough, and from that point, my recovery started pretty quickly, um, and that leads me to the third phase of my life because. During this time, I also had discovered the whole concept of online business. And so I started reading about these people who made digital products and sold them, and that's how they made a living. Um, so it could be online courses like like I'm you know, like I sell these days, it could be books. Um, could be all kinds of things, you know? And so that just seemed like such a lovely way to live to me. So phase number three of my life, which kind of has a little bit of overlap with the burnout phase, phase number two, was where I realized, you know what, like I want to be an online entrepreneur. Um, 
The problem was that I was really still recovering from my burnout at the time. And even though as soon as I started seeing the psychologist, the therapist, things started getting a lot better, I wasn't instantly fixed, you know? Um, to an extent, I still suffer from stress problems today, and I'll, I'll tell you more about that later in the episode. And so at the time, I really wanted to have an online business, but I wasn't really able to like work on that for more than an hour or two a day. An hour or two a day, and I would, if I tried to work more than that, I would get really stressed, you know? Um, and if you don't have personal experience with what it's like to be super stressed like that, you know, chronically for, for, for a long time, um, it's hard to convey how that feels, you know, cause you might be like, what do you, what do you mean? You just couldn't do it for more than an hour or two. I like, I literally could not, you know, without my head exploding. Um, and then I would have to sort of soothe myself by watching, you know, those World War II docs or reading a fun book or going climbing or whatever, something to take my mind off of um, the stress-inducing activity. You know, and with, and, and with the therapist, I developed a lot of uh, both short-term interventions, like in the moments, like, okay, take some deep breaths, you know, stuff like that, basic stuff, as well as um, longer-term techniques to mitigate the stress. Anyway, I, I was super intrigued by this online business thing. I was like, wow, there are people who don't have to sit in an office all day, every day. Oh, my God. Um, you know, and, and, and quick flashback to phase number one when I was working as an economic consultant. One day I was feeling so bad that I just called in sick. I wasn't physically sick. I was just mentally sick. <laughs> the funny thing is, you know, because the job was pretty demanding and I wasn't the only one who found that a demanding job, we had this, <laughs> we had this chart internally. Um, it's called, uh, should I take a sick day? It was very fun. And basically the chart was like, I don't know, it depends on how busy you are. And like, um, unless you're extremely busy and you are needed and nobody else can do the work for you, you can always take a sick day just because you feel like you need a break mentally. That's what the chart came down to. And that's how I felt. You know, I was like, sometimes I'm working through the weekend. Sometimes I'm working, you know, late every single night of the week and I'm giving this job my all. Right now, I just need a break. You know, I don't have any vacation days left or I've already allocated them to a future trip or whatever. I just need a break right now. So I took a sick day. I thought that was very defensible, but... And on the sick day, I was still living in San Francisco at this time, right? I remember I I just took a book and I walked to a coffee place near my apartment in San Francisco. And I just sat there and I remember I was... It was I remember very clearly, um, I ordered a nice coffee, a Danish, you know, pastry, um... And I was reading a book about, you know, the, the, the fall of the Roman Republic or something like that. And uh, I remember sitting there at like a table, a small table inside the cafe. And I was like, oh, my God, it is now a Thursday afternoon or whatever day of the week it was. I am just sitting here enjoying coffee, a pastry and reading a book. This is amazing. This is just so fun. I feel like, am I cheating life to be able to, to get to do this, you know? Because I, at that time, I was working so much. This just this just blew my mind that that was possible, you know? Um, and so then I went through the whole, you know, burnout thing and stuff. And, and I hit that phase back, phase back in phase three. Now I'm learning about this thing called online business. And I'm like, holy shit. If I can do that, I never have to sit in an office again. I never have to rush to make it to the office again i can just work from home and make money that way i won't have someone who is asking me to be somewhere all the time and telling me what to do 
I was like, this seems like the perfect way out of my problems, you know, because I really strongly associated all of those things, having to be somewhere, having to have my butt in that seat, you know, doing what someone else was was telling me to do, you know, having managers and bosses and stuff. I really associated all of that with my stress. And so I thought this online business thing, this is the perfect way to never have those problems again. But like I said, I had a lot of trouble. I couldn't really do much work at that time, you know? And I, I had no idea what kind of online business I wanted to start. And so this really started a period in my life when, um, this is why I call it entrepreneuring, entrepreneuring, because I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I wasn't actually doing that much about it. I was spending my days learning about online business, taking courses about uh, how to run an online business, um, endlessly brainstorming ideas, but not acting on ideas, you know, um, procrastinating by gathering information, you know, like I, I had this goal of wanting to have a successful online business because I thought it was going to give me a much better lifestyle than the lifestyle that I had, than I, um, that I'd had up until that point. But I wasn't really trying to start any, any business. I was just learning, learning, learning and not acting. Um, and that period, uh, took quite a while. Eventually, I was like, okay, I got to take some action. So I half-heartedly started a little business I called Move to Amsterdam, where supposedly I was going to help people um, figure out which neighborhood of Amsterdam to to live in. I was going to sell them an ebook um, to teach them that, even though I wasn't that familiar at the time with the neighborhoods in Amsterdam, you know what I'm saying? So bad fit in hindsight. Um, then I started to do some stuff with yoga studios. because. So another thing I spent my time uh, doing it during this period when I wasn't working is I, uh, not, I wasn't only climbing. I was also doing a lot of yoga because I'd realized even while I was still working in San Francisco, a coworker once invited me to a yoga class and I was like, Oh my God, this is so relaxing. This makes me feel so good. So I was doing yoga also as a way just to relax. And I would go to my local yoga studios, um, or a yo- local yoga studio here in Amsterdam at just maybe two times a week. And, um, Often it was like a bunch of, you know, a bunch of moms and me, which is very funny. Um, occasionally we'd have another dude. And uh, it'd be like a not super hard yoga class, you know, like uh, some movement. Um, yeah, I, I didn't like the really, really quiet classes where, you you know, it was like semi-athletic, right? And um, But I remember a lot of that, the reason I enjoyed that is just to work up a little bit of a sweat and then afterwards just to lie back in savasana. Ah. Lie back and I don't have to do a thing right now, you know? And I was also getting into meditation at the time. So those, you know, yoga and meditation are related. And those are such, such relaxing moments for me and such a contrast between the stress that I was experiencing. And so one day I was, you know, there in the yoga studio and and relaxing, you know, after a session, after a class. And I realized that the yoga studio, um, really was missing out on an opportunity. At the time, I was learning a lot about online business. Like I said, I was, you know, sort of procrastinating on actually starting a business by learn, by consuming all the information out there in the world on how to make an online business. And so one thing I'd recently learned about was email marketing. And so I realized that email marketing is a very powerful tool to increase sales. And the yoga studio wasn't doing any of it or hardly doing any of it. And so I, you know, I was, I was on good terms with some of the people, you know, with the owners and stuff. I would see them and just chat with them. And I was like, hey, um, guys, have you ever thought about this thing called email marketing? I think it could really get you a lot of new members for your studio. You know, so you, you could like sell more memberships. Um, and they were like, oh, that sounds interesting. And so I was like, you know what? Like I've recently learned how to do this. 
Um, I'll do it to you for, I'll like set up email marketing, automated email marketing for you for free, you know, just in exchange for like a testimonial basically. And so then I started this business, which I called no more newsletters. Um, because the way I approached this was if these yoga studios were doing any email marketing, all they were doing, um, was sending out a so-called newsletter, you know, once every three months or whenever they got around to it with like, Oh, we have a new teacher. Oh, we have new this. And, um, most of their students, you know, the studio's students, um, not super interested in those kind of things and uh, didn't really solve, you know, serve their goals of selling more memberships and attracting new people. So set up some automated email marketing for them and, and that was good. But at the time, you know, it was still very messy. I like, I didn't know how to do business at the time. <laughs> I was very new. I'd never started a business and uh, it was quite messy. And I kind of half-heartedly did that. But um I learned a lot about how not to run a, a business slash online business from, from that period. Um, and if you ask me, was I very productive at that time? I would say in a sense, no, because I wanted to have an online business, but I was only, you know, half-heartedly doing it. And, and I was still struggling with recovering from the burnout. So I was really not able to work more than an hour or two a day. Um, so I was really struggling and Occasionally, I would meet with someone and say, like, hey, you have a yoga studio in Amsterdam. Would you like me to, like, set up some automated email marketing for you? But uh, um, a lot of the time, I was just kind of, like, faking it until I, you know, quote, made it. <laughs> and um, that was, in hindsight, a very valuable experience because I learned a lot about how business works and, like, what people care about, you know, how you can create things that people want, you know, which is what business is all about, solving problems for other people. Um, but eventually I realized that, yeah, this is probably not really what I want to do, you know? Like, I'm somewhat interested in it, but my heart was never in it. Um, and anyway, I was spending way too much time on, like, the theory of how I should run this business rather than on actually getting my hands dirty and, like, trying to make this into a business that would make money for me. So at that time, I also started blogging more. And in particular, I started this um, 365-day challenge where I would blog every single day, which I did. So I forget, I think this must have been like 2017, 2018, something like that, where every single day for 365 days straight, I wrote a blog post. Towards the end, I cheated a couple times. Instead of writing a blog post, I would create a video and post that on YouTube. Um, but I created a piece of content every single day for 365 days. And this is when really things started to change. So at the time, again, if you ask me, was I really being productive? It's like, well, you know, I kind of wanted an online business, right? And that was not really happening. So was I being productive? No, I guess I wasn't making that much progress towards my goals. Um, however, in hindsight, what my goal really was at the time was just to figure out what the heck I wanted to do with my life. Um, so you could say that on that metric or, you know, measuring it that way, I was actually pretty productive. I was actually pretty productive because I was trying lots of different things. And even if I was still very messed up from my burnout and I couldn't work too much, I was still feeling stressed all the time and I wasn't making any money with my various little business ideas. I was learning a lot about what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do. And that was productive at the time. Okay, so in terms of um, how many tasks was I checking off in my task manager every day, not many, um, but I had that goal 
which I probably couldn't articulate well at the time, of like figuring out what the heck to do with my life, and, and I was really making progress towards that. So how did I end up with the business that I have today? Well, one blog post that I wrote was about how I used my task manager. Was that at the time, uh, that was OmniFocus. And I had read some posts by people over at Fizzle. Fizzle, by the way, um, may sound familiar to you if you've listened to my previous podcast episode with Corbett Barr, one of the founders of Fizzle, who still runs Fizzle. Um, Fizzle is a, a place where you can learn how to do online business. And I was a member of Fizzle um, for a long time. And I really learned a lot from them. And I, I credit them to a large degree with you know, me having the business that I have now. Um, so I'd read a, a blog post on the Fizzle website that was like, you know, if you want to get some attention for the for the blog post that you're writing, you really got to do a really good in-depth blog post that's very specific. So I was like, you know what? Okay. I'll just write up a very um, specific post on how I use this app, OmniFocus, to be more productive and more organized. And so I did that, and I spent maybe 10 hours, 15 hours writing this up, adding screenshots to the article and whatever, and then I posted it. Um, and at the time I was still in that phase where I was really, I was blogging for just, you know, just some friends and family were reading my blog. Not much was happening. Um, and this blog post, not too many people read it, just like all my other blog posts. So I kind of forgot about it. I just kept going on, you know, I, I kept dabbling with my various other business opportunities. But then about six months later, I, I looked at the analytics for my, my website, my WordPress website at the time, my blog. And it turned out that actually people were reading my blog post about how I use OmniFocus, about how I set up OmniFocus. And that's really when we get to phase four, um, or that's the start of phase four in this story. I realized that people cared about this. And so some people actually started leaving comments on this blog post that I wrote, which was just being picked up by Google, by the way. Google just decided that this was a quality piece of content and just started showing it to people who were searching for various things are related to OmniFocus. And so people started leaving comments on my blog post, the comments like, Peter, this is great. You should charge for this information. And I was like, oh, yeah, I should charge for this. This is my ticket into having an online business. And I'm making it sound really smooth right now, but at the time I was also working with a coach. Same coach I still work with from time to time today, Jessica Ely, with whom I've also done a podcast episode. Um, so go check out that episode uh, with Jessica Ely if you haven't yet. Um, and I, I remember talking to Jessica and just being like, you know what? Like, I, I want to just create a video course on OmniFocus. I've never created a video course before. Um, I don't really know if I can do it. But right now, I'm just doing all these random business ideas. They're not going anywhere anyway, so let's just do it. <laughs> you know, fuck it. Um and so then I basically on a whim just spent a couple of weeks putting together my OmniFocus course, um, get stuff done with OmniFocus 3, although I, I think at the time I initially called it how to set up and use OmniFocus 3. Um, and that course just really was a success. Uh, I still sell it today. It's, it's, it's still a great way to learn how to be more organized and more productive with OmniFocus. And... Um, the course didn't immediately start selling really well, but it started doing pretty well. And and now I'm like, aha, all this stuff I've learned about online business, I can put it into practice. <laughs> so all those years, you know, a year or two that I spent learning, like reading about online business and listening to podcasts, endless podcasts while I was biking around Amsterdam um, about the theory of online business. Now I can put it into practice. I have something to sell. And so I, I wrote to the people at the Omni Group, 
the makers of OmniFocus, and I was like, hey, can I write a blog post for your website? Um, and then link back to my course at the bottom, and they were like, yeah. And so I did that, and I started making sales just from having an article on OmniFocus.com, and people being like, hey, Peter, you know, people discovering me that way, and like, hey, Peter has a good idea for how to use OmniFocus. Let me buy his course. And suddenly, I had an online business that was actually making money. <laughs> so... Um, the process was a lot messier than I'm telling it to you right here, right? It's uh, It was a lot messier, and there was a lot more uncertainty. It really took me a long time to... I'd always known during these several years that I was in the entrepreneuring phase that eventually I was going to make a lot of money with online business. I mean, I'm making decent money now. I'm not making a ton of money, you know what I'm saying? But, like, um, enough to live off of comfortably. And so... Uh, I'd always known that eventually I was going to do that. I just always felt really unsure of whether I could do that in the short term. And so when this finally started taking off, when I finally started making money from my OmniFocus course, I was okay, hallelujah, <laughs> you know, it's happening finally. Um, and it was also sort of a moment of like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm, ne- I'm not going to have to take a job again. Because, you know, at this point, we're talking 2018, you know, March, April, 2018. Um well over two years removed from when I quit my job at Cornerstone Research, and I burned through a lot of my savings um, during this time, going on trips and just general living expenses, you know? And so I was really getting to a point where I was like, I'm going to have to start making money with this online business thing soon, or otherwise I'm going to have to take a job. But I really didn't want to take a job because, you know, the job was the thing that got me the stress and the burnout in the first place. I didn't want to do that again. I didn't want to have people telling me what to do again. I didn't want to work for anybody else. So this really came at the right time for me. Um, And it's at this point that we can really start talking about meaningful productivity again. So for me, task management is really a stress relief tool, a stress management tool, you know? You can do lots of things and be productive, meaning make progress towards your goals, whatever those goals may be, creative goals, your artistic goals, business goals, family goals, whatever goals. You can make progress on your goals without using a task manager. You don't need a task manager, you know? But, um, well, I am going to say you need a task manager, but uh, it's not required, you know? You can live your life without one, but it adds so much structure to your life. It adds so much um, comfort that you've got things under control, that you're not going to miss deadlines. And so for me, it was also... A stress management tool and it is that way for for many people if not most people who use task managers you know and so it was at this point that i started to get more and more responsibilities i took i I created my OmniFocus course i started creating free videos about OmniFocus to put on youtube um of course i had to reply to students who were going through my course i had to do my marketing i started emailing uh an article every week to my newsletter subscribers. By the way, you're welcome to sign up to my weekly newsletter over at peterrucky.net. And so I started to have a lot of things to do again, and task management really started to become a very important part of my life again and a real stress management tool. Then I started, uh, I was like, you know what? My OmniFocus course is doing well, but a lot of people are asking me, hey, Peter, what about this app called Things 3? Like, what about that? You know, um, how does that compare to OmniFocus? Can you teach me how to use Things? So I created the Things course, a course on the Things Task Manager, and I launched that, and that one started doing good uh, as well. You know, it started doing very well. 
So suddenly, you know, I found myself with an online business after many years of trying to have one. Um, and it was a successful online business, making enough money for me to comfortably live off of. Um, and it is now that uh, we can talk about what is my productivity like today, you know? And again, productivity relates to your goals. What are your goals? So I can talk about my goals. My goals today are, you know, there are many, but I'll sort of broadly sketch them as freedom goals. I want to be able to do what I want to do, things that excite me, you know? I don't want other people to have that day-to-day control over my life. Remember, I was telling you about the story when I took the sick day, and I was working at Cornerstone, living in San Francisco, and I went to the cafe or to the coffee house, and it just blew my mind that I could sit there reading a book about something not related to work, enjoy my pastry, enjoy my coffee in the middle of a freaking Thursday afternoon. Um... I love that so much. I wanted to be able to do that all the time, you know? And so that's one of my goals. Uh, Another goal is I wanted to directly serve people working in the big company, um, you know, working for corporate clients. It's sometimes hard to see the impact of your work. Yeah, I'm running this analysis and it results in a chart, but what happens with this chart? You know, we're sending it to the clients. The client's like, thanks, great chart. Like, okay, now what are you going to do with it? So I wanted to work directly with people and be able to see the impact that my work had on people and and my online courses my task management courses they're really you know i get emails now from my students all the time they're like oh my god this changed my life i feel so much less stressed um i recently did a five-week live course and you know one student was like hey uh my wife is super excited that i've taken this course because she sees that i'm so much less stressed right now and like feeling so much better you know <laughs> like she wants to take your course as well and like when you start hearing stuff like that it's like wow that's amazing you know i'm directly helping real people this is not a corporate situation where they're like thank you for making the chart um so so my goals were really lifestyle goals um and in that sense i'm extremely productive these days i'm constantly doing things that are allowing me to live this life that I want to live, to help the people that I want to help with the things that I want to help them with. Um, I'm able to go on lots of trips, which is important to me. Well, I mean, if, you know, when we're not in a global pandemic, I'm able to go on lots of trips. Like I've gone on a lot of trips over the past couple of years, um, COVID aside, of course. And so I consider myself fantastically productive now just because I have really arranged my life in such a way that I can do the kind of work that I want to be doing. So again, I'm not measuring productivity here as in number of hours that I'm working every day or number of courses I'm releasing or even number of podcast episodes that I'm releasing or like, you know, YouTube videos or how many people are watching my YouTube videos or whatever. It's none of that. It is, am I doing enough of of the activities that allow me to continue to live the life that I want to live. And I am. That's why I consider myself very productive these days. So, you know, I, I of course, have this podcast now that you're listening to, how they get stuff done. Um, I also ran that live course uh, that I mentioned just, just a few minutes ago, Big Picture Productivity. Um, and I've got a bunch of other projects in the pipeline. So is my life perfect these days? No, of course not. Um, I still struggle with lots of stuff. You know, just the other day, I had a lot of things coming at me, you know, I had like a lot of people that were asking me for things, students, family, friends, you know, hey, can you look at this thing that I did? Um, I was in the middle of several projects and I was trying to wrap things up and a lot of stuff was coming at me and I started to feel a little bit stressed. But now the way that I handle that 
is I have my task manager. So I just, okay, just record everything that I need to do in my task manager. It's in the system. I trust my system. And I know that I'm going to not forget about it because I'm going to look at it again um, on a set schedule, which is how I use my task manager. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm stressed from time to time. Um, one of the challenges for me still is I have a lot of time freedom now. You know, when I was working at Cornerstone Research, I had very little time freedom. And so one of the advantages of that is you don't have too many decisions to make what to do with your time because people are telling you what to do all the time. But now that I have so much freedom, you know, I'm running my own business. I don't have a boss. Um, I don't have to do things. And so I don't tend to have too many appointments on my calendar, too many meetings. You know, like I'm meeting my personal trainer for some workouts, but like, uh, you know, I'm recording podcast episodes with guests, but there's really not that much. And so when you have a lot of time freedom, you have a lot of decisions to make about what to work on when. So that, that's a struggle for me, and I'm, I'm working on that. Um, I still struggle with putting too much on my plate, you know, back to that old fear of uh, not being good enough, which is fortunately a pattern that I have recognized so often now that, like, you know, when it shows up, I often notice it. And so I can, I can stop myself from trying to do too much, from spreading myself too thin or from trying too hard. Um, but something that I have to monitor and, uh, I use a lot of techniques to do these things. You know, um, I mentioned my task management. I also have a very deliberate goal setting process. So at least once a quarter, but sometimes also several times during a quarter, I really update my list of goals. And so I I think, what are my person, like, you know, like what are my relationship goals, my family goals or whatever, friendship goals? Um, what are my health goals, mental health, you know, physical health goals, what are my money goals? What are my business goals? So, so I do a very deliberate and specific um, writing down of my goals. And then I say, okay, well, what are the action steps that I need to take um, to achieve my goals? You know, And by being really super deliberate about that, um, for years and years, I've completely changed my life from being in that corporate situation where I was burning out um, and yeah, making a lot of money and working with smart people and whatever, an interesting project, but not really having a lifestyle that I wanted to have to having a lifestyle that's just like perfect. It's exactly what I want to do, you know, COVID aside, right? Um, and that's a process that took years, but by being super deliberate about my choices along the way, um, I now am able to be, yeah, productive is not the right word. I'm just, I'm just happy. <laughs> I'm just happy, you know? And, um, Again, I have my struggles, but I'm doing what it is that I want to be doing. And one of the ways I that I really do this, one specific tactic, is I protect myself by saying no quite often. Um, this is a technique that I first learned in sort of the final year or half a year when I was working at Cornerstone Research, and I was starting to get really overloaded mentally. And um, I managed to... S- continue to be a very effective employee there and um, do really well and and sort of generally be on good terms with people by just being really sharp about saying no. So like, no, I'm already committed to this other thing. I cannot work on your project. And it can be really uncomfortable to say no because um, sometimes there's conflict and people may push back. What do you mean no? You know, and be like, well, I cannot do both of these things. So I'm, I'm going to have to do one of these things well. So which is it going to be? Uh, and I really started developing that technique. And these days, that's become more important to me because as my online business has become more successful, people invite me to do more and more things. Opportunities come my way. 
Um, I often get people asking me, Peter, are you doing one-on-one coaching? You know, and, and no, I'm not doing one-on-one coaching right now. And sometimes someone will ask me a few times in a row, you know, and I'm like, um, no, I'm not doing one-on-one coaching right now. And the reason I'm not is because that would make me less productive. You could say, well, that sounds like a productive thing to do, one-on-one coaching, but no, because it doesn't serve my goals, you know? So one of my goals is to have a lot of time freedom. And if I were to do lots of one-on-one coaching, you start having lots of calls with people, you know? And so now you have those calls on your agenda that you have to work around. And I don't want that right now. I'm not saying I don't, I'm not going to want that three months from now or six or 12 or whatever, how many months from now, but right now I don't want that. Um, and so I say no to it. And sometimes that's uncomfortable. Um, but it's such an important tool to protect yourself. And I've really learned how to do that. So that's, that's a, a key productivity technique for me is just to get really clear on what it is that I don't want to do and then to say no to those things. And that frees up a lot of space. And yeah, I, I have a lot of space these days for creative work. Um, I'm working on a new course right now for example, and that's a creative thing. You know, I have to make a course outline. I have to think about what I'm going to say in each video. I'm going to make some supporting materials, PDFs, like what are those going to have? What's the course going to be called? What are the lessons going to be called? How am I going to organize the the content within each lesson and stuff like that? You know, what are the promotional materials? There's a lot of creative work and I just need space for that. Um, So my life these days, like, you know, I might go on a one and a half hour walk just to go to a coffee place, get a takeaway coffee and walk back and consider that exceedingly productive. It may sound weird, but a lot of the times on such a walk, I will be mentally composing a piece of content or putting together the outline for a new course like I've been doing recently, you know? And so that is productive. So I have a totally different vision of productivity now than I did back when I was working in corporate or whatever, or even when I was a student, because I realize now that productivity is just a way of saying like, oh, are you making progress on your goals, you know? And so that requires understanding what your goals are. And so one thing I want you to take away from my story is that I ended up over, you know, I don't know, I guess it took me probably like five years or something, a long process, figuring out what were my struggles, what were my challenges, and how could I overcome those? But also, what do I really want? Like what makes me happy? And I got a lot of clarity on that. And then I started deliberately rearranging my life bit by bit. Um, I guess at some points it was in large chunks, like when I quit my job. But after that, bit by bit, um, in the direction of, you know, being able to make consistent progress towards my goals and being able to do what I wanted to do. So I want you to think. Um, even if you're, you know, maybe you're struggling with burnout as well. And my story is very inspiring to you and that'd be great. I hope it is, you know? Um, but maybe you have different struggles and I want you to think about what are your goals? What is it that you want? What does productivity then mean in your context? What would be a productive thing for you to do? And that could mean if you, you know, if you really have a big love for playing a certain instrument, but you have a corporate job. It could be, you know, your goal, you don't have too many corporate goals. You know, your main goals in life are like spend more time playing music. So whenever you play music for you, that's productive. So how can you spend more time doing that? Um, what? How can you rearrange things to be more productive? Not in the sense of checking off more tasks in your task manager every day or even completing projects or whatever, but just spending more of your time and energy 
on doing things that make progress towards your goals. I want you to reflect on that. Hopefully my story has given you an example that you can use and that will inspire you to think about how you can make changes in your life to become uh, more productive. And and this is what I call big picture productivity, by the way. Um, It's productive in the big picture sense of the word. It's not about how many hours today was I actually doing work. You know, that's not it. It is, are you making progress towards your goals? Because that's in the end what life is about. Um, We all want to be happy. And I I firmly believe, I'm really convinced that the way to be happy is setting goals for yourself and then striving to achieve those goals. You know, of course, which goals you set matters. That's what makes us all different, you know, but that's the way to happiness. Uh, Happiness doesn't come from watching Netflix all day, right? It comes from striving to make certain things happen. And it is the journey itself that often um, is what generates the happiness, the the challenge of it, you know? So so how can you do that? Anyway, um, that was my story, the four phases of my life. Uh, working in economic consulting, uh, being burned out, entrepreneuring, and then having a, a successful online business. Uh, hope I did the story justice. Uh, it's difficult this way when it's just me talking for over an hour. Um, you're welcome to email me if this resonated with you, peter at peterrockies.net. Um, I would also love it, by the way, if you could leave a review uh, on the show um, or if you could review the show, you know, on Apple Podcasts. So that would mean a lot to me if you could just say, you know, um, this is what I thought of Peter's podcast, because that helps, you know, other people find the podcast, and I would love if you did that. Um, Again, if you, I talked a lot about task management. If you have not yet chosen a task manager, and maybe you're not convinced that you need one, um, check out my free mini course, Choosing the Right Task Manager for You. It's over at whichtaskmanager.com. Very easy to find. Next week, I'll be back uh, with a guest again, you know? So I don't know if I'm going to do a lot of these solo episodes. We'll see. But I wanted to share this with you because, again, a lot of people ask me about it. But thanks so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day. If you want to reach me, you can email me at peter at peterakis.net. Thank you. Ciao.